Well, I am so glad to see every one of you, every single one. I've been looking forward to this and glad you've come because um, it would be less fun if it was just me here, uh, substantially less fun. We're starting a new series tonight. The series is called Tough Questions. As most of y'all know, I've, at this time, I've usually done a verse-by-verse Bible study, and that's what I'm comfortable with, and I just felt led to do something different. So months ago, I opened it up to you and also my young adult uh, Bible study that I teach on Sunday nights in my home, and also some of my Facebook friends. I said, what are some of the theological or biblical questions you have that you'd like to hear? Maybe not questions you have, but questions you've heard from others and you don't know how to answer for them. Um, So I I waited to see how many I would get. I thought, well, maybe I'll get enough to cover the fall. Actually, I got enough to cover all the way until next May. So um, I I broke them down into three categories. First category were uh, answering objections to the faith. So questions that you probably hear from non-Christians you know, skeptical people, that friends, family members, and you don't know how to answer them. We're going to try to cover those in the fall. Uh, The second category is answering tough questions from Scripture. So this would be a Bible verse or a passage or a story that you read and you go, what on earth is that about? Why is that in the Bible? What does it even mean? And so I have enough of those that we'll cover those through the winter months. And then the third category is applying the Bible to, to difficult questions in life. These are the kinds of questions that believers have, like, well, what is heaven going to be like? And uh, when will Christ return? And what will be the signs? And, and what does the Bible say about issues like abortion and, and like uh, you know, uh, uh, immigration and so forth? And, and how do we apply the Word of God to things like that? So we'll, we'll save those for the spring and, and hope the Lord comes back first. Um, <laughs> well, let me give you my disclaimer. Now, disclaimers, I should say. Uh, I am not an expert in science or philosophy. I'm a preacher. I try to be a good one, but there are things that I don't know how to explain. Even if I was either of those things, I wouldn't be able to explain everything because we're all human. Where the scripture speaks clearly on one of these issues, I will tell you. Where it doesn't, and I'm just taking an educated guess, I will try to make that clear to you so that you know the difference, so that you can walk away saying, okay, well, this is what Jeff says, but it may or may not be the case. We're still looking for information. We're still looking for the truth. I think either way, struggling with these kinds of issues strengthens our faith. There are those who would tell you, oh, don't ask those kinds of questions. Just trust the Lord with it. Well, yes, you should trust the Lord. Absolutely. But don't be afraid to ask tough questions because the answers are there. And if you don't have them yet, he'll give them to you when you need them. In the meantime, the search for truth is always going to lead you to him because all truth is God's truth. So uh, let me just give you a, a few book recommendations. What we're going to talk about tonight, our first question is, how do, you, how do we know God is real? You see this on your notes if you picked up the notes on your way in. Three books that are going to cover most of the questions we talk about, but especially this one. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. I will say, if you're a person who's, uh, who's a, a, a real studier, you love reading, you love digging into the research, all three of these should be good. If you're the person who has a hard time getting through a book unless it's a dime store novel, and that's most of us, right? Lee Strobel's book is the easiest read. He's a journalist, so he writes like someone who writes in a newspaper. 
And so if you're looking for one that's just an easy read that'll help you build your faith, uh, that's the one I would recommend. So um, last thing before I get into this question, my goal for this whole series is twofold. For those of us who are believers in Christ, I hope it strengthens our faith and helps us feel more equipped to handle objections, to handle questions, to know we can find truth. But secondly, some of you might not be believers. I hope there will be some non-believers that come to this. And if not, I'm going to post this, something that I wrote on, online, and I'm also going to record everyone and post the audio online, so hopefully people will hear that who are figuring these things out, who are asking questions, who are not yet believers. So I'm praying that somebody listening to this or reading this will get some questions answered. See, one of the, one of the things that skeptical people fail to do sometimes is they don't apply the same standards to their doubts as they do to the Christian faith. They look at the Christian faith and try to find all the logical holes and all the things that don't make sense. And okay, I can't believe in it because of this. Well, have you ever done that with your doubts? Because your doubts take just as much faith as faith in Christ. And I'm hoping that this will help some people see that and will lead some people to the truth that sets them free. So let me start with this. So William Lane Craig tells a story. Imagine that I went to visit a friend at his office one day. I didn't call ahead of time. I just assumed he'd be there because it's a work day and I know where he works. When I pulled up in the parking lot, I noticed his car was in the parking lot. When I went up the elevator to his office, walked in, in the outer office, I see his secretary sitting there. I ask her, is he in today? She says, yes, he is. I notice that there are notes on her desk written in his handwriting. I hear sounds inside his office like, Drawers opening and closing, a chair creaking. And so I deduce that my friend is in the office. I assumed he'd be there, so all of that evidence just confirms my assumption. On the other hand, what if I had gone there determined to prove that he never showed up at work that day? What if I was wanting to get him in trouble? And I showed up there with the assumption that he was skipping out. I might interpret that evidence completely differently. I might pull up and say, okay, it looks like his car, but there's lots of cars like that on the market. I might go into the office and the secretary would say, oh, he's in. And I might say, well, you're just lying to protect him. I might look at the notes on his desk and say, well, those can be forged. I, I can't swear that's his handwriting. I might hear the sounds in the office and say, well, that could be anybody in there. In other words, how you interpret evidence has everything to do with the assumption you begin with. When you ask the question, does God exist? The question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to believe that he exists? Because if you want to believe in God, there's plenty of evidence to show you he's there. Now, let me just say from the outset, I don't have to look at evidence. I know he exists because I have a personal relationship with him that's changed my life forever. But if I was an unbeliever and I was trying to determine whether God was real, a lot would hinge on whether I wanted that to be true or not. Some unbelievers will tell you, if they're honest, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be someone in the sky who makes all the rules and who's going to judge us at the end of time. I don't want the universe to work that way. And For that reason, the same evidence we look at and say, yeah, that's true because God is real. They look at and say, it's just a coincidence. It's, it proves nothing. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to believe? And if you say no, I would ask you, 
to question that decision. And I'll tell you why by the end. I'll also tell you how you can know for sure that he's real. But first, I want to talk to you about uh, the three main arguments we have for God's reality. And say this, again, question your idea. Do you want to believe that God is real? Because remember what Pascal said. Some of you have heard this. Um, if, you, if you believe in God and find out is not, he's not there, you've lost nothing. If you don't believe in God and find out he is there, you've lost everything. So consider that if you're an unbeliever. So the three main arguments for the existence of God. The first one, the one most people know, is the cosmological argument which says, why is there something instead of nothing? The way this works is, we know that everything comes from something. If you meet somebody, you just assume they had a mother and a father. Even if they didn't know their mother and father, they had a mother and father. Everyone does. If you see a car, you assume somebody made that car, right? Everything comes from something. If you see a pecan tree, you assume that eventually, uh, originally there was a pecan that it came from. Nothing comes from nothing. So therefore, the fact that there is something means that something produced it. The universe, the existence of the universe, indicates there must be somebody who's always existed, something, somebody or something that's always existed that made the universe. You know, it's often thought by unbelievers that Darwin's theory of evolution means you don't need to believe in God. It proves that God doesn't exist, but that's not true. Even if you believe that all life on earth came from a single-celled organism, that still doesn't explain where all the stuff came from. Even if you believe that it took millions of years for all life to form from this one little single cell, and that one little single cell somehow sprang out of inanimate matter, and that inanimate matter back at the beginning of time went bang, where did all the stuff come from that went bang? Why is there something instead of nothing? Now, some skeptics say, well, the only thing that's logical is the universe has always existed. It didn't need to be created because it's always been. Now, besides that not making sense, the second problem with that is, and listen, like I said, I'm not a scientist. I'm just repeating what I've been told when I've read books written by scientists. But science says that the universe is and always has been expanding. The universe is getting larger. In other words, everything in the universe is spreading outward from the middle. That's why they came up with the idea of the Big Bang. Why is everything racing outward from the middle? Well, originally everything was on one little tightly packed mass, and there was this huge explosion that sent every, everything out into space in separate directions. Now, why would the universe be expanding if it's always existed? The only explanation for the existence of the universe we have is there had to be an uncaused cause. There had to be somebody or something that made everything, that got it all started. So that's the first argument. Second argument is the teleological argument. Don't worry, there's not going to be a test. You don't need to remember these terms, but they're on the sheet if you want them. It just means the argument from complexity. Life is too complex to be an accident. So here's the way I've heard it explained, or my little twist on it anyway. Imagine you're walking through the woods by yourself. You don't hear another sound 
But as you're walking along, you find a piece of wood on the ground and you look at it and you realize it looks like a man. And you pick it up and you look at it and it's got, it, it looks like a man with boots and, and a serape and a, a cigar in his mouth and a, a hat on his head and a gun in his hand. And you say, this is Clint Eastwood from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> now, one of two things is true there. Either a tree has created a growth that looks exactly like Clint Eastwood from A Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you know, the man with no name, and then it dropped right there and you came across it. That's option one. Option two, there's somebody else in the woods who's really good at carving and who likes spaghetti westerns, right? Now, either one of those is possible, but one of those is much more likely. So the teleological argument says when you look at the world, when you look at the universe, when you look at how many different forms of life there are, when you look at how all the systems that have to be just right to sustain life on earth, and I don't have all those arguments, but you, I've read them. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of things that have to go just right. The level of oxygen, the distance from the sun, the level of gravity, and so forth. When you think about all of that, the odds that that happened by accident, are just hard to imagine. Is it possible? Yeah, but it's much more likely that that's the result of something, someone who created it all. The third argument is the moral argument. In other words, if there's no God, where do we get the idea that some things are right and others are wrong? Now, this is the one that's hardest for us to understand because if you talk to an unbeliever and you ask them, uh, so do you believe in right and wrong? They'll say, well, yeah. I mean, you can't just kill someone. You can't steal their stuff. Well, where did you get that idea? Well, we just came up with it. We just, it just makes sense. But think about it. Think about if, if there is no God, if we're just a more highly evolved form of animal life. Think about what happens on the African savanna. Think about uh, one day on the African savanna, a lioness attacks a smaller, weaker animal and kills it. Do any other animals jump up and say, wait, you've just done something wrong. You've just abused your privilege. You've, you've harmed this poor, weaker animal's rights. Of course not. Do the animals all band together and attack the lioness to punish her for doing a wrong deed? No, they go about their business or they run away. They don't, they don't get involved. Now, what happens if you're in downtown Houston and a man jumps out of a car and attacks a woman and tries to drag her into the car? What happens? People pull out their cell phones. They call 911. Some people scream. Some people may even be brave enough to run over and try to rescue the woman themselves. Why? I mean, if we're just more highly evolved animals, then who, whoever's stronger should be able to do whatever they want. That's the way it works, right? I mean, the strongest should survive. That's, that's what's best for our species. Why do we believe that there, there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong? Because we were created in the image of a God who is righteous. Why do we believe in courage? Why do we believe it's a good thing for firemen, strong, healthy firemen with families at home, to run into a burning building to rescue people? That's not good for the species, but we think it's admirable. Or for a soldier to throw himself on a grenade to save his buddies. Why do we believe in self-sacrifice? Why do we believe that a mother who stays up all night with her sick children is a beautiful thing? Why do we believe in compassion? 
that it's good to take care of those who are poor? Why do we believe that we should provide for people who are handicapped, people who are disadvantaged? The law of the jungle says we should let those folks die so they don't, they're not a drain on our resources, and yet we all know that's wrong. Why do we believe in love and beauty? Beauty has nothing to do with the survival of our species. It doesn't help us at all that someone creates a work of art or produces a piece of music that, that inspires us. Where does all this stuff come from? See, you can't figure out a reason for the morals that we all agree on or the existence of morals at all unless there's a God who created us with a moral core. So I've just given you three arguments, which when you think about them, it makes it way more likely that there is a God who created the world than that there isn't. doesn't prove that the God of the Bible is God. We'll get to that on another day. But it proves that it takes a lot more faith to believe there is no God than to believe there is one. But the objection people have, the objection people often bring up, and I've had these conversations with people, and we've gone back and forth, and eventually they bring this out as basically their trump card. They'll say, well, okay, if there's a God, and if he loves us like you say, then why doesn't he just show himself to us? And they'll say something like this, you know, if I were God, and I wanted to convince humanity I was real and have them believe in me, I'd, just, I'd appear in the sky, or I'd go on television, and I'd say, I'm God, and you need to believe in me, and here's why. But instead, he hides from us. So how do we answer that? Well, the short answer, and the probably not helpful answer, but still true, is he's God and we're not. He doesn't play by our rules. In fact, the Bible tells us that God's righteousness is such that we can't stand in his presence and live. Our righteousness, his righteousness and our sinfulness means we can't get into his presence and live. We need a mediator. We need to be transformed. God doesn't appear to us because he loves us and he doesn't want to kill us. But the longer answer, the longer answer is God's ultimate goal is not just to make us aware of his existence. God's not just trying to prove to us he's real. He wants to have a love relationship with us that will save us forever. He wants to redeem the earth that we've tainted with our sin. Look at Jesus. Jesus was never about proving to people who he was. Think about how many times Jesus could have wowed his skeptics and his enemies. The Pharisees kept asking him for a sign. He said, you'll get one sign, the sign of Jonah. In other words, I'm going to come back from the dead someday. But until then, you'll just have to wait. On the day of his death, he stood before Herod and Herod asked him to do a trick and Jesus refused. It could have saved his life, but he didn't do it. Jesus wasn't out to prove his existence or prove his identity. He was out to save people's souls, to bring them into a relationship with God that would change them forever. And so God has that motive and he shows us his love. And we'll get to that in a moment, but let me also say this. People get frustrated when we say you, there's an element of faith in knowing God. And they say, well, that's just wrong. There's an element of faith in all important relationships when you think about it. When you're growing up, you have to have faith that your parents have your best interests in heart. In fact, some of the bad decisions you make growing up are when you decide your parents don't have your best interests in heart. When you decide, well, you know, I'm 15, so obviously I know more than mom. I have faith 
that my wife loves me. I have faith. I can't prove that to you. I can, there is absolutely no way that I can prove to you that that woman loves me. I can give you all the evidence in the world, but if you don't want to believe that, if you want to believe that she's stringing me along, and meanwhile, behind the scenes, interviewing guys who are taller, richer, and better looking, <laughs> then you can believe that, and I can't disprove you. I have to have faith that she really does love me, that what she says is true, and she has to have faith in the same thing from me. All important relationships, all our most important relationships are based on that kind of faith. So God gives us evidence of His love. He gives us evidence of His reality. He gives us evidence of what He wants to do in our lives in several ways. But let me just cover four, and then we'll come to the close. We'll come to how we know for sure. So through creation, this is Romans 1, 19 through 20. Some of you know this. This is Paul beginning the book of Romans, talking about unbelievers. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And we're going to come back to that passage later on in a few weeks when we talk about what about people who never hear the gospel? Because that also helps us answer that question. But what it's saying is, if you want to see God, even if no... Uh, Christian missionary ever comes to you, even if you've never been to church, you've never heard the gospel, if you want to know God, you can see Him. You can see His power, you can see His beauty, you can see His righteousness in the things He has made, in the way the creation works. That's one way He reveals Himself. But secondly, He reveals Himself through His Word, the Bible. The Bible is not what we worship by any means, but the Bible tells us about the one we do. It's the only authoritative, infallible source of information about God. Not me, not any other preacher or religious person, but God's Word, the Bible. And as hard as it is sometimes to understand, when you invest your time in it, it blesses you. It yields fruit. It draws you to Him. It makes you understand who He is and why we are here and what we are meant to do. The third way we know that God is real, the third way He reveals Himself to us is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you read the story of Jesus, and there's four different iterations of it in the Bible, when you read about Jesus and about the movement he began through the, through the letters of the New Testament. You can't help realizing this was no ordinary human. This was, uh, you know, people who think that the disciples made him up or embellished him, they must have been the most amazing writers of fiction who ever existed because we can't invent someone like Jesus. The things he taught, the way he lived, the way he defied all our expectations, the way he fulfilled scripture, prophecy and scripture. And most of all, the path he showed us on how to come to God through him, the act he did at the cross, his rising from the grave. When you read that, you realize who God is. Jesus is the perfect, uh, uh, perfect 
revelation of God to us. And then finally, God shows us his love and his, and his power by the transforming power of faith in him. Spend time around people who've experienced the saving power of Christ. Listen to their testimonies. Watch what God has done in their lives. Now, I'll, I'll gladly, not gladly, I will undeniably say there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians who are a perfect argument against the existence of God. Can we agree in that? Yes, sadly. I'm not saying that every Christian proves that God is real by their lifestyle. I wish that were the case. When that becomes the case, we'll know revival has happened. But until then, you and I can all think of cases. We can all tell stories of people who completely changed, went from abusive to gentle, went from uh, dishonest to full of integrity, went from terrified to courageous, went from self-despising to knowing they were perfectly loved, went from ready to take their own lives to full of joy, full of hope for the future. And some of us could tell stories that are that dramatic. And even those of us who can't, like me, raised in church, raised in a good home, it's not like I was ever in a gang or, or doing drugs or, you know, doing all these so-called scandalous sins. My sins were just as bad as any others, but they didn't make headlines. And yet, I can tell you stories of ways Christ has transformed me. His transforming power is a constant proof that he's real, that he loves, that he has nothing but my best at heart. But if you really want to be sure, and here's where we'll end, if you really want to be sure I got two words for you. Seek him. Seek him. I don't know, at the beginning of my talk, when I told the story of going to visit a guy in his office, you may have been thinking to yourself, if you want to know if he's there, just go into the office, right? I mean, that's how you prove it. <clears throat> the Bible says, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's a great promise. The context there is he's writing to people of God who have been carried into exile because they walked away from God. And instead of turning his back on them, instead of saying, well, you had your chance and you blew it, he says, listen, you may be thousands of miles away from me now, but all you have to do is seek me and you'll find me. Proverbs says the same thing. Proverbs 8, 17, those who seek me, find me. And no, it's not as simple as opening a door, a physical door, because he's God. But it's also not complicated. If you were someone sitting before me today saying, how can I know that God is real? What I would tell you to do is, first of all, pray to him and just say, Lord, I want to know you. I believe you're real, but I need to know you. I need to be sure. Please make yourself known to me. And then I would tell you, read the book of Matthew. Read a chapter a day, starting with Matthew 1. And keep on reading a chapter a day. And just see who Jesus is. And ask yourself, who was this man? Meanwhile, get to know some people who follow him. Get involved in a church. Find some people there who really seem to know who Jesus was. And spend time around them. And see the difference he's made in their lives. And at the end of that time, at the end of however long you want to give it, I believe you'll find it. If your desire is to see him, he will make himself known to you. God does not hide. 
He wants you to find him. He wants you to know him. And that's my prayer for every person who hears this, every person who's here tonight. I hate to ask this question because I don't know that I've got any more than I just gave you, but does anybody have any questions? (laughs) Or comments? Okay. Oh, uh, John Ortberg? Yeah, that's an excellent book. Yes. John Ortberg, Who Is This Man that Dorothy's talking about, is a book that talks about how even if you don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, you can't deny that he's the most influential person who's ever lived. And it shows all the ways he changed humanity. So I, I recommend it. And like, like the Strobel book, it's written on an on a easy-to-read level. So... All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for who you are, and I'm grateful for this chance to talk about you. And I I hope that all of this, tonight's talk and and this whole series would be fruitful. Um, Lord, I know that we on this uh, on Wednesday nights we're used to just getting into the word verse by verse, and that's so that's such a fruitful way to spend time. So I, I pray that this would be equally fruitful. Lord, I pray that what we say here would be true and would be what needs to be said. I pray, Lord, that it would strengthen our faith and would help us feel more equipped to talk lovingly, gently, but with absolute confidence and integrity about you and about how good you are. Lord, I pray for anyone who hears this who's still struggling, who, who doesn't know the truth, that, that they would begin to seek after you and seek after you with a heart that is truly open and that they would find you. Lord, help us to see the people around us who are in that position, and instead of considering them our rivals in some way, help us to see them as lost children who need to come home to you and show us how to reach them in your name. For it is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.